Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be continuing a series as we're just kind of cranking through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and studying a pretty messy early church. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. God, as we get ready to wrestle with your word and to see how principles that Jesus brought to light have application for our lives today and how Paul was applying it to his context. It helps to see how it, it changes the way we live in the world and how things that, round, that run completely counterculture to how we want to react um, have a way of showing and witnessing to the power of the cross in our own lives. So God, help us to see you through the text and let it lead us to worship you with more of our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. When I was growing up, we had a trampoline. And back then, they were death traps. There were no netting or anything to catch you on the side. And we would do pretty dumb things. Um, whether it was just wrestling matches and throwing someone off or literally soaping it up in the summer, throwing a sprinkler underneath it and just seeing the epic carnage of people slipping and sliding and dying. And my dad didn't know half of the things that we did on, on the trampoline, yet he had this fear that if someone gets hurt, we're gonna get sued. And, and so if a friend came over or if a neighborhood kid dropped by, they weren't allowed to jump on the trampoline unless their parents personally called my dad and gave their verbal permission. Why was my dad fearful of being sued? Because that's kind of the culture we live in. We have a lot of litigation and there's a lot of fear that you might be, or you could have the possibility of being sued for just about anything. And so that's the same type of culture that Paul is writing to in Corinth. They were a very sue happy um, litigation driven culture. And so with that, it kind of infiltrated into the church. Now, people back then, if you look at ancient Greece and, and Athens and Corinth, for them, this was a form of entertainment. If you received um, like a notice for jury duty, if you were selected for jury duty, you didn't try to pull back and think, I mean, do they know that I got the mail? Like the mailman might've messed this up. No, you would have been like, yes, I, this is getting chosen for the half court shot during a basketball game at the chance to win a car. Like you would have been pumped to get jury duty. If you had an off day in Athens, you might go down to the courthouse just to watch a case unfold as a form of entertainment. You wanna go hiking to the zoo? We go to the courthouse, sounds great, right? And so with that, this, this Sioux happy culture where a ton of people are, are facing litigation, that infiltrated the church. And the church started suing people within its own community where Christians are suing Christians and, and all of a sudden things that should have been easily handled in-house are being aired out for all the world to see. And it's not a good look on God, especially for a bunch of people who claim to know grace, but yet they're failing to extend it to others, right? And so that's what Paul is addressing today, a church 
full of people suing each other. So let's pick up in verse one of chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six, verse one. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That that word grievance means a legal complaint. When he talks about unrighteous and saints, it's simply a way of saying non-Christians and Christians. And so what's happening here is Christians are suing Christians in secular courts. Now, if you're listening to that and going, I don't think this text applies to me. I've never sued somebody. I don't wanna sue somebody and I don't plan on ever being sued. And you're thinking, so I don't know what to do with this. If that's you, I wanna ask you to hang with me because what's happening is there is a principle, a principle that Jesus gave to his disciples that is now being applied to a context of lawsuits. But the principle that we're gonna see as we unpack this is something that applies to anybody who's ever felt wronged mistreated or unjustly criticized. So if you've ever felt that way, I promise you this text is for you. All right, verse two, he says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? If you're a Bible underliner or circler, that word trivial is an important um, clause on cases, trivial cases. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? And, and so when he says that, do you not know that you will judge? It's important to, to look at this in the context of chapter five. In chapter five, he says that we're not supposed to judge the world, right? That is present tense. Presently, we shouldn't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. That's not our job. We should leave that in God's hand. But if you read through the Old Testament, there's this book called Daniel. It's about half history, half prophecy. And in the prophecy in Daniel 7, it says that God's people will one day sit by his side and help him in judging his creation. Jesus picks up on this in talking to his disciples in Matthew 19. So this isn't present tense judging, this is future tense. So he's saying, there's gonna be a day when you as God's people will sit by Jesus's side and partake in helping him to judge all of his creation. So he's saying, if you could handle something that big and that serious, surely you can, you can handle some trivial cases where Christians are having conflict with Christians. I mean, think about it. If this is Christian to Christian, there are some things that we would have in common. One is we would have the same mission, build, make disciples, same vision, see heaven and earth collide on earth as it is in heaven. We'd have same core values. And so when you have that much in common with your mission, your vision, your values, surely there's enough common ground to work through a solution to a trivial or a secondary matter. So if you could one day sit by Jesus's side to judge the world, surely you could handle secondary cases. He says, so if you have such cases, the such cases are trivial cases, right? If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Or or why are you bringing these to the legal experts? Saying, look, when it's a secondary matter, you don't need legal experts. Find someone in the church who loves God, who has the spiritual gift of wisdom, 
who can truly show impartiality and longs for justice or longs for fairness for what's best for both parties. You can find that person in the church and surely that type of person could help you reach some type of agreement. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. He, he doesn't say, I'm writing to shame you. That's not what he says. He's not saying, I'm, I'm writing this because I want you to feel embarrassed. He's saying, I'm writing this to your shame. In other words, from the outside looking in, you should be embarrassed by the way you're handling yourself. He's not trying to tear them down. He's just pointing out what their, what their, um, what their situation looks like. He's saying, this, is, this should be embarrassing for you guys because what's happening is this church is extremely arrogant. There are tons of people in this church that feel like they've surpassed Paul in wisdom and in intellect in spirituality. They're really, they're not even following his leadership because they think that they've arrived and that he's lagging behind. And so he's saying, I mean, for people that are so smart, surely you could untangle a handful of complicated knots. I mean, wouldn't it be embarrassing if a PhD student in calculus had to ask a sophomore in high school how to use a calculator? Right? It's like you think you've arrived, yet you're struggling to handle something really uncomplicated. It makes me think about the hiring process. If you ever are in a position to hire someone, you generally want to look for three things. Character, competency, and chemistry. Chemistry is simply, do you want to hang out with this person? If you get laid over on a flight, are you cool sitting with this person? Chemistry, right? Character, are they good people? Are they trustworthy? And then competency is, can they do the job you've hired them to do? And so when people apply for jobs, you will get a lot of self-proclaimed experts, people who know how to do the job. Maybe they've written papers on it or they've got degrees for it, whatever it might be. But what's interesting is in the interview process, you can ask, when have you questions? Like when's a time you filled in the blank and the questions are aimed at their ability to do the job. And you would be amazed at how many people have so much head knowledge and think they're so good at something yet they have no experience in the field whatsoever. All right, so Paul's saying like, man, you guys have all of this spiritual wisdom and all of this knowledge and you guys have arrived and you think you're so great, but you can't untangle these knots. Like when's the time that you've handled some conflict with all this smarts that you got, all right? So he's saying it's embarrassing when you look at it. So what's happening here in these first six verses is Paul wants them to see is that Christians should resolve disputes between themselves if at all possible. So as he's unpacking, what he wants them to see is like, man, if it's possible for trivial cases or for secondary matters, if there's a dispute, do everything you can to handle it internally. Like you don't have to take this outside and air our laundry for the world to see. If it's a sin issue, we can deal with it. So there, there's, you might see this go wrong and you can see it go right. A way that I've seen this text go wrong is when people don't balance it with the rest of scripture. So in my Bible, if you were to read my margins, I would have verses one through 11 balance with Romans 13, one through seven. That's in my margins. I've written that down because we have to balance this, this, this concept of handling matters internally with another call on the Christian to be a law abiding citizens. 
What I mean by this is this can go wrong when you take this text and cover up a crime for the sake of handling matters internally. And that might sound ridiculous, but churches will cover up crimes, handling things internally, using this verse to defend their position. So we have to balance it that we also have a responsibility to be a law-abiding citizen. And so if a crime is committed, that is something that the court handles. If it's a sin issue that's not a crime, that's something the church can handle. So for instance, one of my, one of my best friend's churches up in the Washington, D.C. area had a situation where a youth worker did some inappropriate things with some youth. All right, and so this happened when they were 12, 13 years old. When they got into their 20s, they were reflecting back on what happened and thought, man, this was so messed up and we internalized it. We never unpacked this, we never processed it, processed it with anyone. And so they came to light to the church leadership because this guy was still working with youth. And they said, this is what happened to us 10 years ago. And as they did that, the church using 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, decided to handle that matter internally. So they, they rebuked the guy. They told him that he was in the wrong and, and they wanted to restore him like Jesus restored Peter and to allow him to continue working with youth. And, and so this guy committed a crime and it got covered up, okay? So now these guys get into their 40s. You, you fast forward 20 more years and they decide the way the church handled this was completely wrong. And we trusted them, we were led to believe this was most biblical, but this was not right. And now this stuff has completely wrecked the church as it's come out of how, much th- how many things were covered up in the midst of this situ- situation. There are whole denominations that are literally crumbling right now because the church has covered up crimes. So this can go wrong if we take it out of context or don't balance it with the rest of scripture. But this can also go beautifully. This concept can also go beautifully, right? And so there was a situation where we had two businessmen, okay, that had, one had strengths over here, one had strengths over here. They came together to start a business in a certain field and they were doing really well. It was like, they they really did great together. But as things went on and progressed in their business, they they didn't work well together. And so it got to the point where they had to enact a divorce plan, where they had to split their their business, their partnership. And when you divorce, whether in marriage or in a business, it normally gets kind of messy. And so what happened is these two guys just, they weren't trusting each other. And so there's a a lot of headbutting. And so this thing was on the verge of going to court, but it didn't need to go there. And so we were able to step in kind of, and stand in the middle, right? And so we, we had some elders that were godly men who, who had the gift of wisdom, who were truly impartial. They wanted what was best for both of these guys and stood in the middle. And so you had one, one guy had some paperwork that needed to be done. And he's saying, I'm not gonna do my paperwork until you do your paperwork. Another guy's saying the same thing. Well, I'm not gonna do mine until you do yours. And so someone in the middle said, you give me your paperwork, you give me your paperwork. When I have both of them, I will give them to the other. Are you okay with that? And so what happened is what a situation that was escalating was able to be resolved. And then because this was someone in the church that actually cared about both these guys, they were loved on wealth throughout the rest of the process. So there's a way when it's a secondary issue for this to work itself out, where something that could easily go to court and get really messy can be resolved and toned down 
by simply getting people into a room and having someone stand in the middle. So Paul is pleading for them to handle secondary issues, if at all possible, to, to, to deal with them with each other and not to let them escalate, all right? And then he, he moves on in, into chapter, into verses seven and eight to actually take it a step further. Look at verse seven. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, if it's possible, it's possible to defend yourself, to win, to get the things that you wanted out of the deal and to still lose. All right. So when we think about how this reflects on God and the way we're conducting ourselves as his representatives, before we allow a conflict to escalate, we've got to ask at what cost? At what cost am I going to let this thing go big, right? Is it worthwhile to just say, you know what? I'd rather be wronged than for the message of the cross to be defamed. So it could be better to just take one for the team in a sense. So here's a question we need to ask. When people see the way we live, specifically with other Christians in the midst of conflict, okay? When people see how we live, specifically with each other during conflict, do they see a reflection of Christ or do they see a reflection of our culture? Right, so when we, when we have conflict between each other, when, when someone feels wronged or mistreated or, or offended, when the watching world sees us, the way we respond to each other, are they seeing a reflection of Christ in us or are they seeing a reflection of the culture we live in? You see, one of the the fundamental problems that Paul's dealing with throughout this whole letter is a lack of heart change. One of the fundamental problems he's dealing with is is a lack of heart change, where he's seeing people that are claiming Christ and saying there's, there's no evidence of him having grabbed hold of your heart in such a way that it's changing the way that you live. And, and so what's happening is how they're acting externally in the world doesn't align with who they are internally because of Christ. You know, what Paul knows is that knowing Jesus should change our lives. And he's looking at the way they're living and he's doubting that there's been heart change. And so he's addressing that. So look at verses nine through 10. With that thought process of how you're acting externally in the world is not aligning with who I know you to be internally because of Christ, he gives them a pretty big warning. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. Now, as we read through that vice list, chances are you probably heard one word and you're going, where's this going? All right, and I get it. Like, there's, there's a big H word in there and that's probably one of the most sensitive and divisive topics in the church. And if we zoom in on homosexuality, if, if we zoom in on that and unpack it, what's gonna happen is you will leave today 
And you're not going to see what Paul meant these verses to mean for you in your life today. And so we're not going to zoom in on that because to do so would do a disservice to how this vice list functions in the larger context of the chapter. But I think that that's an issue we need to speak into. So what's going to happen is we're going to dive into that next week. Right, we're going to spend. We're going to cover verses twelve through twenty next week, but we're going to kind of backtrack and sit in on that issue for the first half of the sermon. So if you're sitting there going like, "What is their stance?" We're going to unpack that next week. And I, if you can be here, I really challenge you. Like, I would love for you to hear that from a pastor's heart, not just a position paper, not just a, a recording. I would love for you guys to be present for that. So that's that's next week. But like I said, if we zoom in there, we're missing the point of what Paul's doing here. Here's what I want you to see that Paul's doing. This vice list is functioning for him to say, the refusal to extend grace to others when you yourselves have received so much is just as bad as living in habitual sin. He's looking at a church where Christians are suing Christians, where Christians have this flag that they've risen about God's grace and how much it's meant to them. And he's saying, for you to receive grace, for you to preach grace, and then for you to act in a way where you refuse to give it to others, that's just as big of a deal as living in habitual sin. You see, he's saying that people who habitually practice these things give evidence of a faith that's not real. Saying, don't live in such a way where the watching world might doubt your faith. Don't live in a way where people might doubt your faith. And when you guys are suing each other and unable to extend grace to one another, everybody in the world that's looking from the outside in has every reason to believe that maybe your faith isn't real. So this is a really, a really big warning that should cause them to feel a little bit shocked and to, and to do some, some deep heart evaluation. But then he gets positive in verse 11. As, as he lists off those things, he says, and such were some of you. This implies that some people are living in sin, but they're truly saved. It also implies that some people aren't. But here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, God has grabbed hold of your hearts. And then he reminds me, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He's saying, look, this is who you are. Like I know who you are and the way that you're living isn't aligning with that. So this is what we would call become as you are theology, all right? Paul's saying, look, you need to know who Jesus is, what he's done for you and how God views you today. And then start to live your life in a way that begins to express that to the watching world. This is who you are, begin to become like that, all right? Become as you are. So if, if we were to stop here and just ask kind of what, what's the big thing that Paul wants us to get from this text? Like, what's the principle? Remember I said there's a principle and application. The principle is this. When we're wronged, we should be willing to walk away. Okay, now the application is in the context of Christians suing Christians. But the principle applies to all of us. When wronged, we should be willing to walk away 
away. All right, so in this text, you will see question mark after question mark after question mark. I mean, in the first few verses, there are nine question marks. Have you ever talked to someone who talks in question marks or prays in question marks? God, you're good. It's like, it's like everything has a little, I am Ron Burgundy. And so what's happening here is, is Paul is giving a bunch of question marks, which is not painting in black and white. It's the opposite. If you take this text and say, I want a list, give me a black and white list. When can I sue somebody? And when can I not sue somebody? If that's, the, if that's what you take out of this text, when is it okay to go to court and when, it is it, when is it not? You've missed the point. All of these question marks are meant to do something. What he's saying is when you're wronged, you need to ask yourself, what's going on in my heart? So when you get wronged and your knee-jerk reaction is to defend yourself, you need to ask yourself, what's going on in my heart? He wants us to, to look and to question and to evaluate What's going on inside here? So think back. I mean, maybe it was today, maybe it was yesterday, this week, uh, just a, a few weeks ago. When was the last time you were offended? When's the last time you felt mistreated, wrongly criticized? Like maybe when was the last time you found yourself defending yourself? Right? Maybe maybe this happens with your boss. Maybe a fellow employee. Maybe a friend, maybe a, a coworker, maybe your kids. Like, who are you to talk back to me? Like, when, what, like, maybe, like but when is the time when you felt this, this burning desire to defend yourself, to stand up for your rights, right? When that happens, how do you respond? Like when you feel offended or wronged or um, mistreated, how do you respond? generally we really do want to defend ourselves, right? Maybe you defend yourself to the person face-to-face because you're a confrontational, take the bull by the horns. You're like, we're gonna talk about this right now. But maybe you're the more passive type. And so for you, you're not gonna defend yourself to this person, but you're immediately gonna go find that friend group and start building your case with them so that when this thing comes to a head, you've got a support structure behind you, but you're defending yourself nonetheless. Right? We, we generally defend ourselves, but what Paul's saying here is when you're wronged, be willing to walk away. Be willing to walk away. In Matthew 5, you don't, you don't have to turn there, but just trust me on this. Um, Jesus gives the principle that Paul is fleshing out here. It's in the form of retaliation, verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This isn't a full out punch. This is a, this is a backhanded insult. And if someone insults you, you generally have the right to defend yourself. So he says, if someone insults you, don't defend yourself. All right? He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Your tunic was a piece of property that, that you could lose in a lawsuit, but your cloak was seen as your human right, right? And so generally you would stand up for your rights. And he says, be willing to relinquish your rights. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
a soldier could make you carry his armor for so long, but after a certain distance, you had the right to no longer wear yourself out. He said, if someone makes you go one mile, go with him too. Then he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. When a beggar asks you for what you have, you have the right to your resources. You don't have to give them those things. So all these things would be classified as your rights. And we're, we're a culture that's big on rights, right? Activists and having your rights. And, and he's saying, no, 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 as Christians, we should be countercultural. We should be willing to relinquish our rights, especially if it has the ability to help others know Christ. He's saying that if, if you win the day, but you lose the person, what have you really gained? So be willing to be offended. Be willing to, to be stripped. Be willing to be worn out. Be willing to have less than you could have had, especially when it helps others to know the beauty of God's grace for themselves. This is, a, this is a big concept, right? And, and I generally think that when you hear this, there's probably a natural thing in you that wants to say, you don't know what I've been through. Like you, you don't know what I lost. You don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know what that person did to me. And, and if, if that's where you're going with this right now, I just wanna let you know, I don't know what you've been through. And, and I get it, There's, there are certain cases that are so unique and, and complex, but I can tell you this with certainty, Jesus has carried the weight that you're feeling. He has felt it fully. He has come underneath it and he identifies with where you're at. And so we get some great instruction from him on why we should be willing to walk away and how we can have the strength to walk away. All right, so let's just, let's wrap up here. Flip over to 1 Peter 2. We'll close with this. I just want to show you why this is so important for us to do as Christians and how we can have the strength to do it. Why and how, and we'll wrap up with that. 1 Peter 2, we'll start in verse 19. This is one of those texts where I would encourage you just to come back and read it. Read it and sit on it. Read it again and sit on it some more. Read it and ask God how it impacts your life personally. This is a text you've got to sit on, all right? He says this, for this is a gracious thing. First Peter two nineteen. for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, or when God's your focus, not yourself, but when God is your focus, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is a calling that we have in our life. It's like Peter is saying, Christian, this is a call that God has given you. When wronged, be willing to walk away. And he says, this is a gracious thing. How is this gracious? Because when you refuse to react like the world would react, you're showing what it looks like to be Christ. 
then you're showing the world that your hope is ultimately in him and not your things or not your reputation, that he's better. So we have this calling to this willingness to walk away. But how do we do that? Because it's not that easy. And, and to that, he says, he committed no, he's talking about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's his promise. That's his anchor. Then he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Him who judges justly. You see, Jesus' anchor, Jesus' greatest confidence, the promise that he held on to as he marched to the cross was this promise that God will make things right. So he had this incredible faith that no matter how things unfolded in the short term, that in the long term, God will make everything right. And this is a promise and this is an anchor that we have as Christians to believe and to know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. I don't want you to hear me saying something I'm not. Because if you're hearing me saying that you just need to suck it up and deal with being hurt, that's not at all what I'm saying. Paul's not saying just, just suck it up, like your hurt's not real, your loss isn't real, like all that stuff's just, just fake, just, just suck it up and deal with life. That's not at all what he's saying here. He's recognizing that there is pain. He's recognizing that you will experience loss. He's recognizing that your reputation might take a hit. He knows that to to be wronged and have this willingness to walk away, it's gonna leave you with a lot of baggage in your hands. But here's what he's doing. He's saying, take that baggage and take that weight and put it at the foot of the cross. Because at the cross, we have a great defender. We have a God who judges justly. He is your greatest peace. He is your peace. He's saying, take your weight and find your peace in Christ. So that's how we are called to live as Christians. And when we're wronged, when we deal with with mistreatment and conflict and, and we wanna rise up to defend ourselves, when we choose to display grace and extend the grace that we've been given, it's a powerful witness to the cross and its effect on our lives. It's a witness to the power of Jesus and what he's doing to change us, to make us more like him. Think about, think about that text I read from you in Matthew. You have a slap, you have a suit, you have a soldier and you have a solicit, Okay all of these things to deal with your rights. And think about Jesus and the model that he gave us. Jesus was insulted with the crown of thorns. Jesus was stripped completely naked. Jesus was worn out to the point where he couldn't carry the cross to its final destination without some help. And Jesus gave everything he had, even his own life that we might be saved. 
We see he is our example. He is our promise. He is our peace. God, I thank you for your word. And we realize that this calling on our life is not an easy one to live. God, it's so powerful. And it preaches way louder than our words to know your grace in such a way that we would extend it to others. God, we in no way deserved your grace, but you laid your life down that you might call us your children. Now that's who we are. And help us to become that, to begin to live out that identity and that life that you've purchased for us. It's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.